We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. All right, good evening, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm so glad you got to spend a Thursday night with us. And, and so I get to open the Bible tonight, and I love that, right? It's my favorite thing to do. I've dedicated my life to doing it. And this is now my 17th year um, traveling around and doing this. And so, um, and I count an honor to come to Edithburg. I, I, I love you guys. I find you guys refreshing. I, I said this today to Ben and Darren and, and, uh, at, at dinner, and, this, and I mean this. If I, if I didn't mean this, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't say anything negative unless I was asked. But I wouldn't, I, if I'm asked, I'll say, oh, you might could think about this. But, um, but I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it. I wish the whole world, when they, see, the word church doesn't matter. It's what people imagine the word church to be, right? Like, so, so I'll give you an example. So the other day, um, I'll get to the sermon in a second. So the other day, um, I, I've become friends with a, with a, it's a new friend of mine. And um, he's a brilliant guy. And um, just getting to know him and having conversation and, probably accumulated three or four hours of conversation, he picks up in my language, he says, um, are, you, are you a Christian? And, I, and with trepidation, I said, yes. So I, I, this is how I answered him. I said, yes, but with the caveat that I might not be the kind of Christian that you think a Christian is. Right? So if your imagination of a Christian is something I'm not, I don't know that I fit your imagination of what a Christian is, but I am a Christ follower. He goes, I picked that up with, he said, some of the stuff you're doing and this. He said, I, he said, I was born into that. And he said, I was a Christian until I was 28, 29. Um, and he said, but I'm a deist now. And, um, and I said, oh, okay. Um, now, if you don't know what a deist is, that just means they believe in God. They believe God created the universe, and, and the whole universe was put into motion by God, but then God backed off of it. He's, that God is not active in human beings. And so um, and I said, oh, if you don't mind, um, if this is too personal, you don't have to tell me, but why did you journey from Christianity to deism? And, um, and he said, well, he said, I was in a Pentecostal prayer meeting, and he said, I don't want to demean those folks at all. They were sincere. They were having a meaningful experience. He said, and, um, but there was one part of the prayer meeting that they started screaming out for revival. So they're screaming for God to bring revival. And he said, it hit me that if, that, if, if these people got what they wanted and if the whole world converted to Christianity tomorrow, if it was that form of Christianity, the world would not be better. And he said, until Christianity deals with that hole in their narrative, it doesn't matter if Jesus is God or not when the people interpreting Jesus for, for their world are not making the world better. Now, I thought that was the most intelligent critique of that, of whatever form of Christianity he saw that I've heard. Because he wasn't going, it's all bullcrap. He wasn't, he wasn't going, oh, it's all nonsense, it's all myth. He was saying, there's a hole in the narrative if your faith in Christ is not making the world better. He said, if the whole world became the kind of Christ follower you are, would the world be a better place? And until we can answer that question, then we have a hole in our narrative. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to take that on board and wrestle with that. If, if the whole world, and I would say this, that the kind of church you guys have built and the kind of Christianity you guys you guys do if the whole world became community helpers and became lovers of people and loving your neighbor as yourself and doing what you guys did the world would in fact be a better place and so i commend you for that because i wish the whole world when they thought of church thought of what you guys do here i, I do that would just be fair and you should be commended for that if you've if you don't travel outside of here very much you 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 probably don't appreciate it as as much as i do when i come and i i find you guys incredibly um 
refreshing. I always find the country, I, I've, I've, I've made a decision to bless rural Australia for, for the last, I don't know, 12 years. And um, everywhere I've went, there's just something, man, there's this place in Gainda. I was so blessed there. Um, I, I was just in Gundawindi, which is like, oh my goodness, you know, you just drive to hell, turn left, you got Gundawindi, right? But, but the people there were amazing. It was amazing. Dalby, Clifton, Warwick, and um, I celebrate with them the fact that rains came because I got to tell you the difference between last year and this year, the services came alive. And uh, because because the ground was alive, I reckon, I, I guess, and it, it's amazing. So afterwards, as uh, Pastor Darren said, we have our resource table there. 100% of that goes to the poor and the afflicted. Uh, we have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained, so we can try to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, all right? So that's what that goes to. The only thing I would ask you to do is if you know you're not going to get anything, God bless you, I'll see you next time I'm around, okay? If you know you're going to get something before you leave, if you could do me a favor, if you could buy first, and get your coffee second, that would be awesome. The reason is, is I have to tear it down, pack it up, and I have to drive it back to, um, to Adelaide. So, because um, I got to start there. So, if you guys could do that, that would just be amazing. So, I get to open the Bible tonight. When you open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So, in November, I made a brave decision, at least to me it was brave, I, I, I made a decision to teach through the entire book of Revelation, right? And so um, I had like, I had like five, and I'm, I'm going to run the whole thing by you tonight, so get ready for 12-hour marathon, I'm just joking. All right, so, um, so I actually, um, actually, I just finished recording all 12 parts, and um, the first four parts are out there right now, the, the next eight um, have been completed, they're in the editor's office, and they should be done by tomorrow, so if you want it, please let me know, all I need is an email, when it's done, we'll send you the link, right? Because um, this, uh, it went really, really well. And so I want to introduce the book to us tonight by looking at um, one of the letters to the seven churches. Now, let me, before I get into this, um, let me um, uh, say a couple things about Revelation. When I say the book of Revelation, it gets met sometimes with dogma, um, vitriol. People get very passionate about it. So sometimes they put large um, canvas um, plaques across platforms trying to explain it, right? And, and um, I, I want to move away um, from the vitriol and the dogma. It, uh, amongst fully devoted followers of Jesus, there are at least three ways to read the book of Revelation. The first way is entirely a history book, right? I, it's, so it's entirely a book about the first century Roman oppressive system of Domitian and Nero and, and how John is writing a letter to seven, seven churches of real people, real places of real time in modern day Turkey who are living under horrendous oppression of Caesar Domitian and Caesar Nero. And those people, if you read it that way, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're fully devoted followers of Jesus. I love you and let the Christ that, that, that holds us all together be glorified more than I need to be right about how to read Revelation, right? A, a, a second way to read it is entirely as a future book, right? So it's all about something that might happen in, in, in the future. And if you read it that way, you're my brother, you're my sister. And may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about what, the way we read Revelation, right? The third way is as a hybrid. So the third way is that it's obviously a history book. It's an allegorical and symbolic history book that is critiquing first century culture around the oppressive regime of Caesar, but it can also have future implications as well. And there are fully devoted followers of Jesus who read it that way. And if that's you, you're my brother, you're my sister, I love you. And may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right 
about any one thing. And then there's another group that have never read it because, frankly, they don't get it. And um, it's just, frankly, weird. There's a, a vision of locusts riding horses that are wearing military armor. Uh, and you're like, what? All right. And so you're like, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. So if whatever camp you're in... <laughs> I hope to bring revelation alive because anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. So however you've seen it, I'm not approaching the Bible wanting to be right about it. I assume we're all incomplete. I'm approaching the Bible not wanting to miss out. So if you've got a different way of seeing something, I just want to, I want to maybe add a facet of light to the diamond. So when you turn it, the light refracts through it a bit differently. So, so, so first thought before I get to the slides, Revelation 1-3 says it this way, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and hear it and put it into practice. So, so evidently, Revelation is not something to be decoded. It's something to be put into practice. That's one. I, I love the words of the great theologian Tim Mackey, um, who leads up something amazing called the Bible Project. He said, Revelation is not a series of secret codes to tell us about the end of the world. Rather, Revelation is a fundamental commentary on how human beings left to their own power struggles will always create a new Babylon that oppresses most people to enrich a few. And that's what's going on. So, so I want to look at it from that perspective, not because it's the only perspective and not because it's the rightest perspective, but because it's the perspective I understand the best and I intend to make this really entertaining. So let's see if we can do this. If you could bring that first slide up for me, Caleb. This um, revelation is a letter to seven churches, um, real places, real people, real time, uh, in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, and they're under horrendous oppression. And I want to read, I want to start by reading just one of the first sentences of one of those letters. Here is to the one at Sardis. To the angel of the church at Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So let's talk about that for about 20 minutes, okay? Because there's so much going on in that sentence. Let's unpack that first. This is the one who holds the seven spirits of God. In a Jewish setting, this is just a reference to Messiah. The seven spirits of God were defined in Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. One spirit that has seven manifestations. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. It was said that Messiah, who would be king of the world, would be holding those things in tension. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. So in one sense, John's saying, this is the words of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In, in, in another sense, he's saying, he, he's saying, this is the one who is faithful and true. But then he says, this is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven Stars. Now, this is a subtle and not so subtle in your face confrontation. So let's talk about politics for a second, shall we? In, in the first century, Sardis was under the rule of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was ruled by a group of people named Caesar. Caesar started with Julius Caesar, who combined the whole world under one rule, and he invented the salad. He was an amazing guy. He was an amazing guy. And he said, I am not just a man, I am God in flesh. The Roman Roman poet Virgil said that in Caesar was the fullness of God incarnate. 
covenant and no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. Well, if you know your history at all, you know that Julius Caesar got killed by being stabbed in the back by his best friend, a guy named Brutus. Now, this hurt his God claims because the idea was if you were actually God, you probably should have seen that coming, right? But here's what happened. Here's what happened. Julius Caesar's funeral took place, and at his funeral, it just so happened, and this is a historical fact, it just so happened that at his funeral, a comet came so close to earth that it lit up the day and night sky. Roman historians said it lit up the day and night sky for seven days. Obviously a bit of an exaggeration. It was really close and it lit up for a very long time. But think about it. If you're a primitive person and there's no such thing as telescopes, here's what they wrote. That at Julius Caesar's funeral, a strange star appeared in the sky and lit up the day and night sky for seven days and then shot off into the distance, proving that Julius Caesar was not just a man, but he was fully God incarnate. And he is now taking his seat amongst the council of the gods. So Julius Caesar's son, a guy named Octavius, who wasn't his son, it was his great nephew, who saved his butt from behind enemy lines in a place called Gaul, modern day France. And Julius Caesar was so impressed by that, he adopted him as his adopted son and made him the heir to the throne. And so Octavius said, see, because my father was God. Okay, first of all, not his father. Second of all, not God. Because my father was God, that makes me the son of God. And if I'm the son of God, then I should be worshipped. So Caesar Augustus instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth, and it lasted from December 19 to December 31st every year, and he called that celebration Advent. They actually changed the Roman calendar to make the new New Year's Day the end of the celebration of his birth. On the first day of Christmas, right? this should be making a bit of sense. So Roman propaganda started going out about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had to get word from Spain to India that he was God in flesh, and this was confirmed by, by, by stars. So how do you get word from Spain to India that something's true? Well, here's what they would do. No printing press. Town crier is unreliable, no electricity, no internet. So what would happen in the first century, check this out, is communities of people across the world had to wonder if this was a real story from the government or if this was fake news, right? We wouldn't have to deal with that today, but they had to deal with that back then. So here's what the Roman Empire did. If you wanted to know it was actually a message from Rome, you printed it on money. And when it was printed on legal currency, that was actually a message from Rome. And the money would eventually make its way around the empire. So Caesar Augustus printed his greatness on coins. There, there were several Caesar Augustus coins. One said, Caesar Augustus, God saves. One says, Caesar is Lord, no other name on earth by which men can be saved. One said, Caesar is Lord, he'll multiply bread for all people. One said, Caesar is Lord, there will be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. So, is this sounding familiar around maybe Luke chapter 2? Anyway, so, the Caesar in the time of the book of Revelation was Caesar Nero and Caesar Domitian. Now, the, the, the propaganda on Domitian was is that Domitian ran the empire during the day, but at night he kept the world in place by sitting on top of the world and juggling the seven stars. And the seven stars being held in just the right place is what held the world in place. So how do you get word around the empire that you are the one who holds the seven stars? You print it on money. A simple Google search of Domitian and the seven stars will give you this. This is the Domitian coin. Next slide. This is Domitian, <laughs> and he's sitting on top of the world. I, I think the person who minted this coin got killed 
right? Domitian cannot be happy with that. He, he, the, the mentor of the coin uh, minted him as the Gerber baby, okay? That, that, that's first. So this is Domitian, presumably sitting on top of the world as the Gerber baby, and, and he's juggling the seven stars. You can count the seven stars. And you could start at about oh, 11 o'clock up there and start reading around, and what it says is, is it says Domitian, Caesar Domitian, God saves. Caesar Domitian God says. So when John says, this is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he's saying our guy gets the last word, not Domitian. Domitian doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. He says he's holding the seven stars in place, but if there's anybody holding the seven stars, it's our guy. Now, Domitian said he was God in flesh. Now, if you say you're God in flesh, that leads to a few questions. One, which God? So Domitian said, glad you asked. He said, I am full of two gods. One is the male god Jupiter, the god of courage, valor, and victory. And Rome will never see defeat in a military battle as long as I am in charge because I am full of the god Jupiter. So if you want your young men to be safe in battle, entrust them with me because I am full of Jupiter. And of course, he printed that on money as well. Next slide. This is the Domitian, which is a much better picture of Domitian. This is a Domitian um, coin, and on the back, that is the god Jupiter claiming that he was full of the god Jupiter. But you can't just be full of a male god of valor and courage and victory. That makes you sort of a chauvinist. You're also full of a female goddess. See, he said, not only am I full of the male god of war and victory and courage and valor, Jupiter, I'm also full of the spirit of the goddess Roma, the goddess of virtue, purity, justice. So Roma in the coinage is always presented on horseback, holding the scales of justice. Let me show you that coin. Next slide. So this is Roma. You can see at the bottom it actually names her Roma. She's riding in on horseback and she's holding the scales of justice, right? And she's, pre she's presented in a lot of coins as in these full flowing purity sort of virtuous thing. Can you see now why in the book of Revelation John says stuff like this, and I saw a great whore descending on a horse to the city of seven hills. Rome was called the city of seven hills. If you want to know why, go there. Trust me, it's the city of seven hills, right? He, he says, I saw a great whore descending on a horse to the city of seven hills. Do you see how this is John doing it in your face confrontation. He's like, hey, the goddess that is supposedly the goddess of justice and virtue, not only is she not virtuous, she's the opposite of that. She's a whore. This is like in your face confrontation. So this is not something to be read literally. Like if you're waiting for some point in the future for a great prostitute to come from the sky riding a horse and you think that's literal, please consider thinking of it a different way because I hope that's a metaphor, honestly. Can we all just admit together there's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse? That would be just terrible. <sighs> that would be like just terrifying, right? So this, <clears throat> this is the world that John lived in. Now, Domitian had an idea. Here was his idea, ready? He thought, you know what I'm going to do? His advisor said, hey, the center of mercantilism, Wall Street in that day, was outside of Ephesus in a place called the Agora. This is where we get the word agoraphobia from, a fear of the central marketplace. Here's why. It was very accessible by land and sea. So whether you're coming by east from China, India, or from the West, Spain, France, whatever. You could come to the Agora, buy and sell, and then go back and sell at a profit. And so here's what Domitian's advisor said. You know what you should do? You should put a tax on the Agora to enrich yourself. Domitian said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I've become unpopular. But I have an idea. Since I'm God in flesh, 
Here's what we'll do. Instead of taxing it, we'll make it a law that everyone has to give an offering to me just for the divine privilege of having the Son of God rule them before they can buy and sell in the Agora. So here's what he did, because that's different than a tax. So here's what he did. Outside of the Agora was a huge outdoor pantheon of the gods. And so what he did to prove he could do this is he put a roof over the top of the pantheon of the gods. And on the top of that roof, he put a 28-foot high statue of himself. And he said, see, not only am I the king of kings, I am also the Lord of lords. And if If I wasn't the God of gods, those gods would have stopped me. But since they didn't stop me, that proves that even I am in charge of even the gods. And so the whole world bought this, except for one group of people called the Jews, who thought they were just a bunch of statues anyway, right? And so he he then, what he did is around the four corners of the Agora, he built four churches, ecclesias, as an honor to himself. Inside of the ecclesias, he posted his mightiest deeds on stone tablets and do you know what they called the stone tablets Exam- exalting his mighty deeds they called it the gospel the good news of what it looks like for caesar to be in charge of you is this sounding familiar at all so he put his de- his deeds in there and here was the rule before you could buy and sell you had to go into the ecclesia and give an offering to domitian just for the divine privilege of having the son of god rule you problem is how do you enforce that so here's what he did he hired acolytes witnesses who would stand there? Two witnesses. They would stand there. They would watch you give your offering. And when they watched you give your offering, they would give you a mark in your forehand or in your forehead that would tell the managers of the Agora that you've paid your fee so you can now buy and sell. So the Jews came up with a nickname for this guy. They called him the beast who comes from land and sea. The reason is twofold. One, any empire that oppressed the Jews, they called them the beast. Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, Edomites, they all called them the beast. So that was one reason. The second reason was, was that whether you were coming by land or by sea, Domitian, that 28-foot statue, was the first thing you saw. So from 72 AD to 92 AD, before you could buy and sell in the Agora, you first had to take the mark of the beast. Yes. So this is what was going on, right? Now, are, are you guys bored? Okay, good. All right. So, all right. So, because I can remember about this. So Domitian was such a narcissist. Here's what he did. And pay attention, and trust me, you've heard this before. Here's what he did. He said, hey, all the gods of the empire have an Olympic-style games dedicated to their honor except me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start an Olympic games to my own honor, and I'm going to call it the Domitian Games. This is what I'm going to do. So here's what he did. Tell me where you've heard this before. To prove his dominance over the empire, he divided the empire into 12 districts. And he forced each of the 12 districts to give up two delegates to come to the capital city and play in his Domitian Games, which was a multi-event fight to the death that only had one winner. (laughs) Is this sounding familiar at all? The only district absolved from giving two delegates was the capital city because the underlings were meant to entertain the members of the capital city. Because if you were lucky enough to be born in the capital city of Rome, you were guaranteed a living wage based on the excessive taxation of everybody else. And that excessive taxation and living wage was called an this is true, the dole. Now, 
What they would do, true, absolutely. So what they would do is every two years you would have the Domitian Games. So 24 young people would come from all 12 districts to fight to the death in the Domitian Games. The reason is, is Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. So here's what they would do. When you showed up to the Roman Colosseum to the Domitian Games, you were given two things, a white robe and a gold crown. And Caesar would stand in the middle of the, of the um, Colosseum and you would sing a hymn of praise. It went something like this. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor, glory and power and blessing. And at the end of the song, they would cast down their golden crowns at his feet. Think about your Roman Empire movie. Caesar is always there like this. They're showering him with whatever they could. Oh, by the way, Domitian employed 24 people to follow him around and tell him how awesome he was, right? Is this, start, this should make revelation. Remember John said, and I saw the four and 20 elders sitting around the throne and we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, but we were singing a new song. In other words, I've seen how this ends and Domitian doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. So hang in there. Don't faint in the oppression. I'm telling you, I've seen how this ends and Jesus gets the last word, not Domitian. By the way, the final four of the Domitian games, and there was only four people left, was a four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. I'll give you one guess as to what color those horses were. They, they were four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. Think Ben-Hur. They would go around and around and around the Colosseum with tigers and obstacles and stuff until everybody was dead except one. When the one person was left standing out of all 24, they were declared the winner of the Domitian games and given honorary citizenship to the capital city of Rome, which guaranteed them a living wage based on the excessive taxation of other people and it was called the dole the last scene of the domitian games you have 23 dead bodies and likely some dead animals was two characters one called death and one called hades and they would come in on horseback and clean up the dead bodies so when revelation said and i saw death and hell descending on horseback this was about the domitian games now from 78 a.d to 92 a.d this went on every two years in 94 a.d a young lady from district 12 took on the capital city with a bow and arrow right right that, that okay never mind all right so that that, that you you got it right tell me you got it right right other people are like i don't know what you're talking about right everything else i said was absolutely true the last part was a reference to the hunger games which has the same basic plot line okay so <laughs> oh there you go oh yeah 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 there, there we go so that that's that's the world that john is writing into that's the global politics <laughs> now let's talk about local politics <laughs> Next slide. So Sardis was an important part of the Lydian Empire of Persia. It was on the main road from Ephesus to the main parts of Asia Minor, right by the Agora, by the way, uh, thus making it an important center for buying and selling. It, it was built as a lower city and an upper city. So if you've ever seen it, there's a lower city where the, the not, not the poor, but the poorer people lived, and the real elite lived in the upper city, 1,500 meters high up a straight rock face. It was, it was, it was the most impenetrable secure place that it was so secure the roman archives were hid there that's where they stored 
their most legal, important uh, documents. Um, next slide. Um, so this is, uh, Sardis hit its uh, stride under the rule of a guy named Croesus. Um, Croesus was the richest man who ever lived, presumably. No one knows exactly how much he had, but let's just be honest. If you're in the conversation for being the most rich person who's ever lived, that you're rich, right? Um, actually, even today on the news, if someone's really rich, they might say they're rich as Croesus, right? It's still, it's actually still a saying today. It was the first place in the world to master the art of spinning wool. If you see movies that were set before Croesus, um, people were wearing whole animals. Um, Croesus had this idea, if you shear sheep and spin it into wool, the sheep, they're a renewable energy source, right? So the Kiwis were like, we figured that out a long time ago. Croesus was the guy, he, he was the first one. Um, it was the first place to mint coin in such a way that standardized the amount of gold and silver in each coin. So before Croesus, you had to do all these tests to make sure people weren't being dodgy. So Croesus met a need. He said, you know what I'm gonna do? What if we mastered the art of mending coin that standardized the amount of gold and silver in each coin? So what happened was, this is how Croesus got rich. The whole world started looking to Croesus to mint their money. And who's going to get a small percentage of each coin minted? He is. This gets better. Talk about a man who landed on his feet. Check this out. Next slide. So they discovered the largest deposit of gold yet found in the world at that time underneath the upper city. So here's what he did. <laughs> he mastered the art of minting money. And then they find the largest deposit of gold ever found up till that time underneath his feet. That's landing on your feet, right? Now, here's the problem. If you find the largest deposit of gold ever found in the history of the world up to that time underneath your feet, who wants it? Everyone. Here's the good news. It's underneath a 1,500-meter-high rock face. So, so no matter where you were trying to attack Sardis from, you recovered from an elevated position. So here's what Croesus did. He built a big army. And he put a 40-foot-high wall around that rock face. So not only now do you have a 1,500-meter rock face, you have a 40-foot wall around the thing. And Croesus famously declared Sardis the impenetrable city. Here's the problem. It kept getting robbed. It never got conquered, but it kept being robbed. N next slide. In 546 B.C., a guy named Cyrus the Persian attacked and plundered the city with a surprise attack. Here's what he did. He sent two spies to find a way into Sardis. And he told them, if you can't find a way in, don't come home. And they couldn't find a way in. Here's how the story goes. I don't know how much is fact, how much is folklore, but this is how the history story goes. That there was a guy on the wall. He was in the military. And his job was watching the wall of Sardis. Now, now would you agree with me that if your job is the night watchman of a wall of an impenetrable city, that is literally the most boring job on the earth. Right? Right? And his head bobbed. He fell asleep. And his helmet came off his head. And it went on the outside of the wall. Well, instead of going back to the barracks and getting a new helmet and perhaps facing discipline for falling asleep, he sneaks down to the valley below to fetch his helmet. And he did so through a secret passageway that was dug just for the military from the center of the city through the rock face down and through to give the military easy access to bypass the wall. He goes down there to fetch his helmet because he fell asleep. And when he came back up, he unknowingly revealed the entrance to the secret passageway to the two spies. So then Cyrus sends a special forces platoon into the city, not to kill anybody, not to, not to attack it. That would be um, untenable. But what they did is they snuck in in the middle of the night through that tunnel <laughs> while everyone was asleep and they robbed the place blind. Right? That was 546 B.C. In 398 B.C., a guy named Antiochus the Great, a Greek guy, he performed a surprise attack through the same tunnel. 
So by the time everyone was dead that remembered the attack, people got complacent again, and they got robbed while they were sleeping. In 334 BC, a guy named Alexander the Great did it again. So every time they got complacent, they kept getting robbed, which let's stop and let's think about that for a second. Is Australia really that much different than Sardis? Sardis was the richest city in the Roman Empire. Australia is one of the top 10 richest places on earth. We woke up today in a country with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our taps, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and in Australia, it's largely free. This is an amazing place. When I hear Australians complain about Australia, where are you going to go? Like, honestly, if you can't make it here, bro, where are you going to go? This is an amazing place. If, if somebody came to your house tonight and threatened you, you can call triple uh, O or 911 or, and there's at least one cop in Edithburg. I saw him today, right? <laughs> and the law will come out and protect you. See, in affluence, see the, see, the generation turning 19 today has more money in the bank by the age of 19 than the previous four generations before it combined. And that's obvious. All you do is talk to them. Hey, what's your plan? Ask a 19-year-old, what's your plan? With a straight face, they'll say, I'm thinking about taking a year off. <laughs> what? What are you going to do? I'm going to go walk around Europe, find myself. <laughs> so your idea is to take a year off, look at old buildings and watch $10 coffee? E eat $10 coffee? Yeah. Wait, could you, you may, I'm 44. If, if, if you're 44 or older, could you imagine telling your dad that you were going to take a year off? To find yourself? <laughs> My father would be like, oh, look, there you are. <laughs> oh, look, oh, look at you. I have found you. Huh? They have more stuff than ever before, but yet they're reporting the highest rates of depression ever. Why? There's a lot of reasons why. It's complex, but I can tell you one of the reasons is that we've removed most of the object cause from their life. Meaning in life is interpreted as a tension between object desire and object cause. Object desire is what you want. Object cause is the struggle to get what you want. So if you want a new truck, that's your object desire. The object cause is the price of it. How much are you going to have to sacrifice to get that new truck? And if you ever get the truck, the meaning of the truck is not found in the truck. It's found in everything you remember to get to getting the truck. See, I, not right now, but I, I would bet a pretty good penny that on Sunday morning, there's an eight-year-old running around this building with an $800 phone. And what did they do to earn it? Nothing. So when we remove all the object cause from people's lives, you can't help but wonder why they interpret their life as less meaningful. Of course they will. This is why you can't present the gospel. You cannot present the gospel to a 19-year-old as, hey, trust Jesus and one day you'll get to live in a mansion in heaven. They already live in a mansion and it's not working, right? Right? This is what's going Could you? Do you understand that? And this is the fear for all of us. In affluence and security, people lose their desperation for what God means to their life. And that's what's happened in Sardis, and that's what I fear could happen in Australia, is that, is that we lose our desperation for God when we fall asleep. So that's the Roman politics. That's the Sardis politics. Let's talk about the religious politics for a second. Next slide. So Sardis was ruled and dominated by the religious rule of a lady named Kibbola. 
She was the daughter of Zeus, twin of Apollo. Kibla was also known as Artemis to the Greeks and Diana to the, to the Romans. So if you hear those words, those are interchangeable words. I, I, found, a, I, I found a picture of Kibla. Um, let, me, let me show you a picture. Next slide. This is Kibla. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> Isn't she lovely? Hey. Uh, so Kibla was the goddess of fertility. Um, I, I don't want to be rude, but it's because she had, I don't know how to say this, um, she has lots of nourishment. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I'll let you say it. She has a lot of breasts. That's what you said. That's, that's exactly right. And that's obvious. Yeah. Um, so she, she was the goddess of fertility. She was also the goddess of the hunt. Right? So if you, but before you, before you go hunt for food, um, you would go by the temple of Kibbalah. You would give an offering and ask Kibbalah to um, make sure you found food. Here's the problem. If you Google Kibbalah, she was also the goddess of the protection of small animals. <laughs> so she, so there, was a, there was a conflict of interest, right? Um, uh, th there's this one story from history where there was a famine in Sardis um, the, the people couldn't find food and without refrigeration it doesn't matter how much money you have if you can't find food you're in trouble and so think about this as a try to be primitive for a second if you're an ancient Sardis and you can't find food who have you offended? Kibla so what do you do? you go give offerings so this is what they did the men of Sardis went to the temple of Kibla and gave more offering no food. Gave more offering. No food. Gave more offering. No food. People are starting to starve and turn on each other. This is a problem. So here's what they did. The men of Kibbalah got convinced that she thought they weren't loyal to her. So here's what they did. They said, how can a group of men prove to a woman that we're loyal to her? So here's what they did. They went to the temple of Kibbalah, and in one religious frenzy, hundreds of them self-castrated, and then through their testicles, on the altar to Kibbalah as an offering to say, please, Kibbalah, know that we, the men of Sardis, are loyal to you. Will you please provide us food? <laughs> By the way, in 1908, archaeologists found the ancient temple to Kibbalah, and they uncovered the altar. It is now a tourist attraction. So if you're ever in Turkey and you come across the temple to Kibbalah and you find the altar, don't sit on it. <laughs> it has history, okay? Now, <laughs> Let's talk about this for a second. You say, Shane, why does this matter other than entertainment value? Which I hope you're entertained, because that helps, right? But let's talk about this for a second, right? Paul went and built a thriving church there. Right there. She received worship through open-aired acts of immorality. She accepted testicular sacrifices. She was in charge of the food and the animals. That's called being in charge of everything. Do you see now why Paul had no trouble growing a thriving church? It isn't any trouble. Here's what Paul did. He showed up there and he went, hey, I serve a God who loves you just because will feed you just because he loves you, and everybody can keep all their bits intact. Who wants to come with me? <laughs> Massive following. Might it be relevant that she was the goddess of the region when he wrote, I don't permit a woman to have charge over a man? Might this not be oppressing women? Rather, it was speaking against a female goddess that was oppressing men in a horrendous way. Might that be relevant? Might it also be relevant 
that he was growing a church so fast that who got threatened? The priest for Kibbalah. So what did they do? They had him arrested. If you want to read about this, you can read about this in Acts 19. They have him arrested in Ephesus, which is where she was the hotbed, right? And here's what it says. It says, the pagan judge said, what do you want me to do with him? For he has not robbed our temple, nor has he blasphemed our goddess even once. In other words, Paul went and started a church across the street from that. And he never spoke bad about that, not even once. Could we do that? Is our faith in Christ big enough that we could build a church anywhere in the world without being against the people across the street? Without being against the evil? If Jesus overcomes evil and he overcomes the world, it's not even worth a mention. Paul goes into that. This is why I, get, I got so disheartened around politics. Um, I was in Melbourne when Scott Morrison got elected. And I want to be clear, I'm happy he did. What discouraged me was how small Christians saw Christ. Do you remember the night before the election, he was like nine points down in the polls? Remember that? These are literal things Christians told me in Melbourne. Oh my God, Shane. If labor gets in, they're going to take the Lord's Prayer plaque out of Parliament House. I don't mean to be Johnny Raincloud here, but if the Lord's Prayer is not active in someone's heart, having it on a plaque on the wall is doing nothing, right? Just a quick 30 seconds history of God. He overcame the watery chaos at the beginning to make new creation, fresh starts, second chances, mulligans, and the opportunity to write a better story called creation. By chapter six, he overcomes the watery chaos again. He overcomes the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, Tiglath-Pileser. He overcome Antiochus Epiphanes, who spread pig's blood through the Holy of Holies to prove that God didn't actually live in there in 157 BC. He overcame Pompey Magnus, going into the Holy of Holies and moving the furniture around to prove he wasn't real. He overcame the Roman Empire. He overcame all the Caesars. He overcame Sardis. He overcame Kibla. I think he can overcome Donald Trump. I think he can overcome the Labor Party. I think, I, like, God is not panicking, right? He's not going, oh, my, me! What are we going to do if Labor gets in? No, no, come on. He's like, what are you talking about? I overcame Sardis, bro. I overcame that. Caesar. Like, this is no trouble. Like, how big do you think God is or how small? Now, that is my best effort at explaining the geopolitical, history, social, and religious history of Sardis. <laughs> That's my best effort explaining what happened. Now let's ask a better question. What's happening in me right now because of what happened? And let's read the letter with that as the backdrop. To him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, write this to Sardis. Here it is. Next one. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and, and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. This is a city kept being robbed blind because they got complacent. He's just meeting them right where they are. Ne ne and next slide. 
Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Let him, next slide, let him who has ears, um, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and hear it and put it into practice. This is not something to interpret the future. This is about us right here today. If you read Revelation as a future book, I love you, I honor you, as long as you apply it now. If you read it as a history book, I love you, I honor you, but apply it now. If you read it as a hybrid, I love you, I honor you, apply it now. So a couple thoughts about this. Next slide. Wake up. What are you doing? What are you doing? You can't rest on what you did yesterday. Come on. You can't get complacent, insecurity, and affluence. We are the rich people in the world. And I'm glad we are. I don't want to go back to being broke. Right? I don't want to go backwards. People say, yeah, but Shane, we're so less connected to our neighbors these days. Of course we are. Are you kidding me? 150 years ago, it took four people to have a meal. You had to have somebody growing the wheat, somebody growing the tomatoes, somebody growing the lettuce, and, and, and somebody harvesting the pigs. You had to have four people to have a BLT, right? I, like, and then those four people had to work together to protect each other because there was no cops, right? Like, like this, this is better. I, I prefer Woolworths, right? I prefer grocery stores that prepackage food for us. I'm thankful to all the farmers that provide the food to the grocery stores, right? I prefer that. And so in affluence and security, we get very complacent. And I think maybe God's word to us is the same as Sardis, and that is wake up. Wake up. What are you doing? Don't get complacent. You're, hey, let's say it this way. Maybe let's put another language around that. Next slide. Your deeds are not yet finished. What, what are you doing? That's what he says to Sardis. Wake up. Your deeds are, I'm not done with you. You're not done. You're still waking up every day with breath. There's infinite possibilities to say yes to what Christ has for you. Christianity is not an exercise in going to heaven when we die. That is absurd. Although I embrace heaven when you die, I embrace resurrection. But if your whole faith is sitting on your butt waiting to go to heaven when you die, what are you doing? Life with Christ is about saying yes to the infinite possibilities that he has for us to bring heaven here. That's what it's about. It's, about, it's not about going to heaven. It's about having heaven so established in you that when you do walk into heaven, you don't get whiplash. It's that. It's like, oh, I've been living like this for a while. Yes. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Your deeds are not yet finished. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, I, I, I've, I, I've regularly been so moved by what you guys have done. I've sown finance into it. I, I, I sowed finance into the, into the Arderson campus. I, I, I sowed finance into some mission projects. I just love what you guys do because all, none of our deeds are finished. We're not meant to just sit on our butt and be complacent. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Remember and hold it fast. Essentially, he's saying, when everybody comes to Christ, there are the voices of the infinite possibilities that are alive inside of us. And then the white noise of, of life or the world or fear or money or whatever, it, it diminishes those voices. And, and John is saying, John is saying, hey, let, let the voices, remember those infinite possibilities when you, and hold it fast. It's a reference to old rabbinical teaching. Here's the old rabbinical teaching. They say, and I think this is brilliant, they say a fleeting thought will not hurt you, nor help you. So if you have a fleeting destructive thought, don't worry about it. If you have a fleeting good thought, it's not going to help you either. This is why people annoy you with, um, they show up every week with a new vision from God, but they never accomplish anything, right? Because right? a fleeting thought will not hurt you, nor help you. But here's what they say, a disciplined imagination, a disciplined thought, your reality will start inching toward it. 
And the gap between what you're seeing and what you're believing God for, that's what requires faith because faith is the substance of what you hope for but you haven't seen as yet. And once that reality, you can discipline that imagination. Here's what Jesus is saying. Wake up. Your deeds are not finished. Come back and hold the imagination of the infinite possibilities of what God could do for your life. The, the fourth one is this. He says, repent. That just means to turn around, to return to your dream. To return to your dream. I, I think the last thing he says in this letter, given the context, and I, I think it's so important, is this. Next slide. Is be encouraged by each other. See, the first three verses of this sound preachy. Wake up! Your deeds are not yet finished. Remember, hold it fast, repent, return to the voices of the infinite possibility. This is a good, that's a good sermon, man. And then with no transition statement, no caveat, no nothing, he goes from that to, oh, look around, there's a lot of people in Sardis who haven't sold their clothes. Which is an odd sentence in English. I know for us that sounds like, hey, they've pooped their pants. But, 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 it, but it, it, it's obviously a metaphor around righteousness. He says, look around. There's a lot of people in Sardis that haven't sold their clothes. Now, I don't want to pass over that too fast. And it's my last point of the night, so I want to make sure this gets there. Could you imagine trying to live for Christ in Sardis? Just for a second. It'd be terrible. First of all, you had to proclaim Caesar as Lord or you died. Secondly, you have Kibla as the regional god, S, who is receiving worship through open-aired acts of immorality. Like, it's, and Sardis wasn't that big of a place. Like, it's about the size of Edithburg up on a cliff, right? So, you walked out of your front door, and you could hear the drums beating, and you knew open-aired immorality is going on right there. And how do you challenge anybody living in Sardis? They have money. They have security. Why do they need what you're offering? What exactly do you offer, right? And here's the thing. It was illegal to announce that you were a Christ follower. If you did that, you died. So here's what you'd have to do. You couldn't tell your neighbor you were a Christ follower unless you knew they were too. But they're living with the same fear you do. So what do you do? You have to watch them for months. You have to see how they treat their wife, how they treat their husband. You have to say, hey, they had a right to sue someone they didn't. What, what's that about? You know what? I've never heard them grumble or dispute. Look at their basic disposition and conflict. And over months and months and months of watching their behavior, you would start thinking, I think they might be a Christ follower. And you'd still, with trepidation, sort of bring it up in some coded language in case they weren't because you'd die. In other words, Christianity in the first century took off because it was illegal to make the faith around what you believed. The faith was spread because of how you lived. And that's better. That's better. Like Christianity got ruined when it became a system of what we believe instead of who do we trust. That's a two different things. Could you imagine trying to be a follower of Christ in Sardis? You might actually start thinking that you're by yourself. No one else is in on this. I'm wasting my time. And there's nothing that kills your dream like loneliness. It's not depression. It's not anxiety. Those things hurt. It's not rejection. Those things hurt. It's when you believe you're alone. First thing in the whole Bible, God said, isn't good, loneliness. Oh, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. That, oh, that's not good. I could do better there, right? Man, loneliness is a killer. And here's the problem with a church like this. There's a way that you can come in here tonight and have a meaningful experience with God. The two of you that sang, brilliant. That's brilliant. It's meaningful. 
it was the presence of God was tangible. I really enjoyed it. There's a way you could come in and experience an authentic sense of the presence of God. You could listen to at least average preaching. You could be moved by it and learn a lot. And it'd be meaningful, but you leave lonelier than ever before. That's a problem. So maybe before we leave tonight, maybe my response call would be this, to wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Repent, hold it fast. But maybe what can invoke that in someone is before you leave tonight, encourage them. And I don't mean the Pentecostal eye twitch. I have a word from God. I mean, <laughs> like, jeez. I mean, like, just be flipping normal, right? Just, just walk up to somebody and say, I think you're a good mom. I just want you to know you're a good dad. Are you going to be? Hey, hey, that thing you're going through with your business, I want you to know I can't do anything to fix that, but you're not alone. Like, you're not alone. You're never by yourself. You know that medical test you're scared about? I can do nothing to fix that. But you know what? You're not by yourself. I, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there every step of the way with you. I, 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 maybe we just need to be encouraged by each other. He, he, Jesus, it, I don't think it's any mistake that the last thing he says to Sardis, everything's preaching, wake up, your deeds are not yet finished, da, 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 da. and then he says, oh, bef before I stop the letter, um, I, I just take a moment and look left and right and notice that there's a few people in Sardis that haven't sold their clothes. In other words, you're not by yourself. L let me read this one more scripture to you next slide. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put the prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. I am the only one left. And now they're going to kill me. What's that called? That's called despair. Is it true he was the only one left? No. Is it true he felt that way? Yep. And that skews everything. And God doesn't even argue with him. Watch what he says. Next slide. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed them. In other words, the only reason you think you're alone is because you're only looking at yourself. If you just looked around for a second, you'd realize there's a heaping pile of people who are standing up for the right thing. So my brothers and sisters of Edithburg, may we wake up. May we know our deeds are not yet finished. May we hold fast to the infinite possibilities that God has for our life. May we return to that. And more than anything, maybe tonight, may, may we invoke the flame in somebody else by being a word of encouragement. May we realize that we are not alone. We are not alone. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central, and I hope for goodness sake that revelation got, got bigger for you. I hope that that book sort of came alive and, and that you're wondering, I wonder what else I'm missing in there. Um, I, I hope that that is, is the case because it is a beautiful, 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 compelling thing. Um, until I see you guys next year, thanks so much for your hospitality and your kindness. I love you very much. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.